London, New York, Barcelona. Today from Ireland, you can fly to almost any place. But what if you could fly to any time? If you could experience events that change the world, if you could meet the people who lived through history, would you do it? Welcome to a new series of Time Travels, the programme where we explore the past. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. It could be a bumpy journey. OK, we've landed in an enormous stadium. There must be thousands of people here. This can only mean one thing. We're in ancient Rome, and this is the Colosseum. Hello there. Are you here for the show? Oh man, I'm so excited. It's my first time at the Colosseum, but I can safely say that I have never seen anything like it. All of these thousands and thousands of people here for the day. My uncle arranged it. My younger brother was invited too, but he's actually a bit of a wimp. He really doesn't like blood and guts, so he's staying at home. <laughs> Me? I wouldn't miss it for the world. Pretty pleased with these seats. My uncle said we need to find seats high up that'll give us a good view of everything. And now we just settle in for the show. Did you know that when the Colosseum was first built, they used to sometimes fill it up with water so deep that you could sail ships in it? Then they'd have a sea battle for everyone to watch. When it was over, they'd drain all the water and have land battles. I wish I could have seen that. Nowadays, underneath the Colosseum, there are lots of tunnels and cages, called the Hypogeum, with elevators that bring animals and gladiators into the arena through trap doors in the floor. Fighters never know what the next challenge might be, or where it could come from. So, a fighter could, could be feeling pretty happy with himself having just defeated, like, a bear. When all of a sudden, he turns around and there's a lion right in front of him. <laughs> it's crazy stuff. Sometimes there are executions, but that sounds a bit of a drag, really. Some people love watching Christians being executed, but I don't know. It's never really appealed to me. I'm pretty keen to see the gladiators, because me and my brother always talk about them, and when we were kids, we'd spend hours play fighting and pretending to be them. The gladiators are usually slaves, or sometimes they're prisoners who have been captured during a war. You have to be really strong and fit to become one. They usually train at a special gladiatorial school and learn all the skills they need with swords and other weapons. I used to think it would be pretty exciting being a gladiator, but as I got older I realised that every fight is usually a fight to the death, so it doesn't end well for a lot of them. But. If a gladiator does win a lot of fights, then he can become pretty rich and famous. Some people go to the Colosseum just to see their favourite gladiator. 
It's about to start. Get comfortable. I think we should find out a bit more about ancient Rome. Ask an expert. My name is Hugo Kennedy. I am a tour guide. I've been working in Rome for three and a half years, showing people around the ruins of the ancient city of Rome, which include the Forum, the Colosseum, the Pantheon, and thousands of other different cool sites. What was life like in ancient Rome? If you went to ancient Rome, you'd see a lot of things that you might recognize. A busy, big city. It once was a million people. And it'd be very similar to walking around a big city like Dublin or London today. You would see people from all over the world, all over Europe, um, because Rome was the center of an empire that stretched all the way across Europe at one point. Uh, people speaking different languages. You'd see roads, you'd see, well, if you went underground, you'd see sewage systems. The rich people would have lived on top of the hills in beautiful villas, as close to the palace of the emperor as possible. And if you were poor, you lived probably in apartment blocks, uh, which were all over the city. And if you were very, very poor, you lived in real kind of slums, uh, which were further out of the centre. So overall, I would say that your life really depended on who you were, whether you're rich whether you're poor or whether you're a slave. What was life like for children in ancient Rome? Again, it would really depend on who you were as a person, where your background came from, your parents came from. If you were rich, you could expect to go to school and you could even go all the way up to university as well. You could go into the army, you could go into politics, you have the world at your feet, really. If you're kind of a middle-of-the-range Roman guy, a poor guy, you'd probably do pretty much exactly what your parents used to do. Maybe be a stonemason, be a trader, or whatever that was. If you were a slave, then you were kind of stuck where you were, unless you were very, very lucky. Uh, you would be born into slavery, and uh, you could be freed from slavery. And sometimes if you got very wealthy, you could buy your way out of slavery. So for kids, it really depends on what your background is. But, you know, they played games we have in ancient Rome. You can walk into the ancient Roman Forum and you can see written on the, uh, on the ground on some of the steps and some of the buildings, like little board games that look kind of similar to chess or checkers or something like that. What did the ancient Romans do for fun? They did lots of th things, apart from playing board games and hanging out with their friends. They, uh, the most... Uh, Extravagant building in all of Rome uh, was the Colosseum, which was huge, held 60,000 people or so uh, back in the Roman times. There you would go to watch mostly gladiator fights. Usually gladiators were slaves. The majority of them were slaves. They didn't have much choice in fighting or not. Fighting was very vicious and in general was always to the death as well. If you go to the Colosseum now, you can see two gates. One is called the Gate of the Living, one is called the Gate of the Dead. The winner walks out the gate of the living, the loser walks out the gate of the dead, watched by 60,000 people all roaring for a bit of blood. But uh, also, apart from gladiators in the Colosseum, you had uh, animal fights, hunting scenes. Uh, they imported animals from all over the world. You got tigers, uh, lions and bears. 
Romans actually wiped out lions in uh, Northern Africa. There used to be lions in Northern Africa before the Romans they imported so many for their games. Colosseum was very popular, but the actual, the most popular sport in ancient Rome was chariot racing, which was held in the Circus Maximus, which is up there with the biggest stadiums ever built. 150,000 people uh, could sit in the Circus Maximus, and they would support one of four different teams, the whites, the reds, the blues, and the greens. And uh, the greens were the most popular all the time. And different emperors, they would all choose a different um, team that they liked to follow as well. And they were famous for drugging and bribing different teams to try and get their guys to win. Who were the gladiators? Gladiators were sometimes professional, but usually not professional, men who were forced to fight inside the arena for people's entertainment. If you became a really, really successful gladiator, you could win your freedom. And these were the the sports stars of their day. These were the superstars of their day. Uh, Gladiators could become really wealthy and were probably the most famous men in Rome when they were fighting. What kind of food did ancient Romans eat? Pretty much every ancient Roman will eat bread every single day. The rich, they get the best bread. The first uh, bit that's ground and made, the poor, their bread tends to be full of dirt and grit and stuff like that. One of the most popular things to eat in ancient Rome uh, for everybody, pretty much everybody in the city and the empire, was something called garum. Garum, G-A-R-U-M, garum, which is the intestines, the insides of fish. You take it out. You put it in the sun for about two days or so. You let it kind of rot and ferment and you'll take that and you'll put it into into amphora, which are pots which you can send all over the world. The most famous garum was from Portugal, um, but you'd send it all over the world and they would use it for loads of different things. You spread it on bread, you would use it to improve the taste of food and uh, the best garum was really, really very, very expensive. It was like the tomato ketchup or soy sauce of the Roman world. The wealthy had kind of luxuries which they would bring from all over because remember this is the center of a huge empire where you got things coming as far away from as as India. One of the famous specialities of uh, ancient Rome apparently was flamingo tongue which was meant to be quite good. What gods did the ancient Romans believe in? The ancient Romans believed in Loads of different gods, hundreds of different gods who controlled loads of different things, little small things from the household, small things like fire, or all the way up to the most powerful god of all, who was Jupiter, the king of the gods. And Loads of people worshipping different ones. If you go to Rome now, you can see temples to loads of different gods. Um, you can see the Temple of Jupiter, which is used to be massive, not anymore. It's a bit of a ruin right now. Uh, but the most impressive temple to go see is go see the Pantheon in Rome. And it is beautiful. But that was the temple to all the gods of ancient Rome. They would have different feast days. Um, and uh, they would, on these different feast days, loads of different things happen depending on the different god. You would usually sacrifice something, like usually a little animal or something like that, um, which depend like maybe a goat, maybe a pig, uh, maybe a cow. If you're feeling very rich, you would sacrifice a cow. Religion was really, really important for Romans in every aspect of their life. What did the ancient Romans give us? Probably a better question would be, what did the ancient Romans not give to us? Because the list of things they gave us is very, very long. Uh, if you speak... French or Italian or English, 
then you will definitely use Latin words every single day. If you ever called a plumber out, you're using a Latin word. If you have central heating in your house, the Romans were the first ones to do that. If you have a toilet that flushes in your house, I think the sewage that goes away, that goes through things that are kind of based on Roman systems as well. If you've got a road that drives through the centre of town and out somewhere else, you're probably using Roman ideas as well. Did you know that ancient Romans used to eat dormice? They would dip them in honey and roll them in poppy seeds. Weird, but true. Here at the National Museum, there are some items that came to Ireland from the Roman world. Fiona Riley is going to tell us about them. My name is Fiona Riley. I'm one of the assistant keepers of Irish antiquity here in the National Museum of Ireland. That means that I'm one of the curators who helps to mind the objects that are in the collections that have been collected by the museum and by people in Ireland for the last 150 years. We're here in um, what we call the Treasury in the National Museum of Ireland in Kildare Street. And uh, in here we house the objects from the Iron Age and also into the uh, early medieval period. As far as we can make out, not a lot of people from the Roman world came to Ireland, but we had a lot of contact with the Roman world through Britain when um, the Roman Empire was at its height. Um, Southern Britain was was under their control and um, we did a lot of trading and we know from contemporary documents that um, the Romans knew about us and that um, trading did occur. Tacitus, he was a senator and a historian and he wrote about this period and he says that they now know a lot more about Ireland thanks to the trade of merchants. So we see objects coming into Ireland through trade We have burials as well, a few uh, Roman-influenced burials, and one from Stonyford in County Kilkenny is a burial of a woman in the 2nd century AD, and um, it's been suggested that uh, she might be buried from a nearby trading post and that there were traders there. We know she's Roman because her grave style is Roman. She was uh, cremated, and her bones were placed in a glass urn. Uh, This used to be on display in the museum, but at the moment it's in storage and she had also had a, a bronze mirror and a little uh, cosmetic jar, so we know, we know it was a, a woman. There were also earlier um, in the period uh, refugees came from Britain, uh, probably after the invasion of Britain by the Romans, so that we had contacts through them with, with um, the Roman world. Um, later on, we started raiding Britain when the Roman Empire started to collapse. So one of the most famous... Uh, people was um, Patrick, St. Patrick. He he was um, brought as a slave to Ireland and then later came back as a missionary. So at that stage, we had a lot of contact through missionaries with with the Roman world as well and and the church. And we also started to um, settle in Britain as well. Uh, One example of that were the Dalriada. They settled in in Scotland. So there was lots of toing and froing and objects coming and going and people communicating with each other. Many of the the Roman objects that we have in the collection, some of them are stray finds, some of them are objects that were deliberately, again, placed in the ground as some kind of an offering. And in this case, we have, on the lower level, we have objects that were found in Newgrange. Now, Newgrange is 
um, a Neolithic site. Um, people might know it in, um, as one of the as a large mound that people built when we were first farmer first farming in Ireland. But even in the Roman period, it was still seen as a special ritual place, and people came and they put objects um, outside it and, and placed them in the ground. So here we have two brooches that were made probably in the southeast of England in the, during the Roman period, and uh, they were buried there. We also have finger rings. Uh, we have 25 coins, and we have two of them on display here. One is from Constantius I, the other one is from Constantius II, and they were minted in Trier in Germany. But they would probably have come to us through, through Britain. One of the other objects, the gold, it looks like it's a cut-off from an Irish torque, but it's actually got Latin writing on it. Uh, so these were all found in Newgrange and Newgrange has been identified with Bruna Bruyne, and Bruna Bruyne was the um, the place where Dida, another god, lived, and that the, they gave their offering, they gave their present to the god, and and this is what they brought with them. So whether they were Roman, uh, Romano-British, that means Roman uh, people in Britain who had taken on um, Roman uh, traditions put them in the ground there, or whether they were Irish people who had somehow got these objects through trade or they had visited Britain and come back, um, we don't know. Uh, when we say a hoard in archaeology, we mean a group of objects that have been gathered together and placed in the ground, usually as an offering uh, for a god. And um, this hoard here is the Broiter Hoard, and it was found in um, Dockfoyle in County Derry. It consists of a boat, which is made out of gold, um, a small boat. It's a copy of a seagoing leather coracle, and it has a mast, and it also has oars. We also have a model of a gold cauldron, two chains and two neck rings, and the best example of... Uh, Latin gold in, in Ireland, the Broiter Collar. So the hoard was found on the old um, shoreline of Loch Foyle. Now it was found during ploughing in 1896. It was probably originally put into the sea by somebody. And in the Iron Age, we put objects in groups usually into the ground as an offering to a god. And the Roman connection, getting to it finally, we have two very finely wrought, very delicate gold chains and they are thought to originate from Roman Egypt, so as far away as possible almost that you can get in the Roman world these objects came from there and ended up in um, the very northern part of Ireland, so a remarkable journey uh, I think they would have come through probably continental Europe into Britain and eventually made their way across, across here and were put on the ground then in the, uh, the first century BC. The ancient Roman world included many wealthy cities around Italy. Some of these settlements remained and still exist today as modern cities and towns. Of course, they have changed a lot since they were founded. If someone from the ancient Roman world were to visit, they probably wouldn't even recognise these modern places. But over 2,000 years ago, one ancient city would become frozen in time. This is the story of Pompeii.
was a city in Italy near Mount Vesuvius, next to the Bay of Naples. It was a busy place where around 20,000 people lived and worked. They traded many goods and grew different crops, including grapes. Like cities today, they had running water, footpaths and markets with many different things to buy. There were some beautiful houses with painted murals on the walls, called frescoes, and the floors were decorated with coloured tiles, called mosaics. The city was wealthy, and nobody seemed to be too worried about Mount Vesuvius, the volcano that stood nearby. Pompeii sometimes experienced earthquakes, but all in all it was considered to be a safe place to live. All of that changed on a fateful day in the year 79 AD, when Mount Vesuvius brought catastrophe to Pompeii. It is thought that the day of the eruption must have begun like any other for the people of Pompeii. No doubt they were at work, or tidying their homes, or learning lessons. The ground had been trembling for a few days, but this wasn't considered too unusual, as the city often experienced earthquakes. However, by lunchtime it was clear that something was very wrong as Mount Vesuvius began to erupt. Smoke, rock, burning cinders and choking dust shot into the sky, raining down on the city. Before long, the roofs of the buildings fell in and everything was buried in over three metres of burning ash. Most of what we know of the eruption and what happened to Pompeii comes from an eyewitness account written by a lawyer and writer by the name of Pliny the Younger. As a young man, he had managed to escape the area with his mother. Twenty-five years later, he wrote to his friend to tell him what happened. His uncle, Pliny the Elder, a writer and philosopher, had died while trying to rescue people from the catastrophe. Sadly, many people did not escape the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which lasted almost two days. The whole city was buried in ash and rock and lay hidden for hundreds of years. It was not until the late 18th century that the ruins were discovered and excavated. Because the eruption happened so quickly, the city remained as it was. When people were covered in ash as they tried to escape, the shape of their bodies were found in the rock. Many buildings were completely preserved, including bakeries with bread still in the oven and restaurants where guests sat outside to eat their meals. Jewellery and pottery was also found. The remains of the city of Pompeii is a snapshot of the ancient Roman world and thanks to its discovery, historians have been able to work out many things about how these people lived over 2,000 years ago. Home sweet home, and the airport is just as busy as ever. And like I said, you can fly to almost anywhere or any time. So, where do you want to go next?
This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.